let's open our Bibles to Judges chapter 4. We're going to look at Judges chapter 4 and 5 this evening. Uh, the last time we were together in the book of Judges was the week before last, and we looked at chapter 3. And before we get in there, just to kind of recapitulate, if I can, to recap what has happened so far, uh, the children of Israel have come out of Egypt, and they've been in the wilderness for 40 years. Now they come across, and you remember they were fighting battles and uh, gaining land that God had given them. And that took some time, at least seven years, maybe even more. And now that they've been settled in the land, and especially after Joshua had passed away, we, we see the children of Israel kind of reverting back and, and sliding backward rather than going forward. In fact, the book of Judges is often called the book of failure or could be called the book of failure because of the, the, the sin of the people and their lack of devotion to the Lord and their lack of obedience. And so these things have happened. I would like to turn your attention to uh, verse 7 of chapter 2. This is uh, verse 7 through 11 because this really kind of sets the stage for the whole entire book of Judges. So in chapter 2, verse 7, it says, So the people, the children of Israel, they served the Lord, they served Jehovah all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now, the son of, now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old, and they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath-Herez in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gaash. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, meaning they had died, when all that generation had died, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. And then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. The Baals were these false idols that the Canaanites had been worshiping for centuries, and that's precisely the reason why God brought them into the land of Canaan to destroy those idol-worshiping people who we had given many, many years to turn from their sin, but you know that they did not. And so I think that's one thing to remember in all of this is that when we looked at Joshua, and certainly as we look at Judges, this is not just Israelites against uh, pagan nations and pagan peoples. This is a holy war. This is a war that God is having and His judgment against these nations that He has brought the children of Israel into. Remember that, because it's not about the Jews against these other people. This is God using the Jewish people to accomplish His means, and that is to judge that area, and that's what He did. Remember back in Genesis 15 where it says that the, the iniquity of the Amorites had not become full yet, and that's one of the reasons why the children of Israel were still in Egypt. God was preparing them, but He was also giving time and space for those seven nations in the land of Canaan to turn away from their sin, and they did not. And so God used them as His lightning rod, if you will, His hammer, to bring judgment upon those nations. And so this is really God... Uh, his, cha his chastening, His judgment, actually, against those people groups. And so Israel was just His means to do it. And we see that all throughout history, that sometimes even God would use ungodly nations to chasten His own people. We see that in the Assyrians in their captivity, 
or Israel in their captivity going to Assyria. And we also see that in the Babylonians when they came against the children of Israel and, and brought them captive to Babylon. So God can use his own people to um, chasten other nations, and he also uses those other nations to chasten his own people when they've continued in their rebellion. And so that's what we see in the Bible. That's what we see in uh, certainly the book of Joshua, and we see it in the book of Judges and all throughout Kings. And so this evening we're going to be picking up in... In chapter 4, last uh, couple of weeks, we looked at Othniel, who was uh, the first judge, if you will, of, uh, of, the, of the time of the judges. And uh, God had sold the children of Israel into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim. He was the king of Mesopotamia. And they served uh, the king of, uh, of Mesopotamia uh, for a time. And... Um, God was going to use Othniel, who was a descendant of, of Caleb's uh, from the tribe of Judah. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he delivered. He gave uh, Othniel and those uh, members of Israel a victory over Cushan Rishathaim. And, and then after that, the land had rest for 40 years. And, and then uh, Othniel, the, the son of Kenaz, he died. And then that's really the first season, if you will, or the first period. Throughout the book of Judges, we're going to see seven different periods of deliverances, of deliverers who, would, who God would raise up to deliver the children of Israel from their enemies. And we looked at also at Ehud, who was the second judge. And he's, his um, rule, if you will, uh, or his... Uh, judging over the children of Israel, he, uh, that lasted the longest of, of all the judges that we have in this book, and his reign lasted, I shouldn't say reign, because he wasn't really a king at all. He was just someone who the Lord had raised up, and in fact, Ehud, uh, God raised up to come against the king of Moab, because uh, Moab and, uh, had gathered Ammon and Amalek together to bring them, the children of Israel, into captivity in a sense, to put them under service. And the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. And so you remember that Ehud uh, came and was offering a tribute to the king of Moab, uh, Eglon. And the Bible says, and I love this, that he was a very fat man. There's no political correctness here at all. Uh, he came and, and he um, uh, approached the king in a private moment and wanted to whisper something that God had told him. And as he got close, he pulled out a dagger and he thrust it into Eglon's stomach, who was a very fat man. And uh, we won't get into all the details of that. Nonetheless, he died. And then uh, Ehud went and he gathered the, the men of Ephraim and, and they came down and they uh, took possession uh, again of, of Moab and they were no longer under the uh, judgment, if you will, or under the uh, servitude of the king of Moab any longer. And so now we get into chapter 4 and this is a, a wonderful couple of chapters. We have to look at both of them because it speaks of Deborah and, and Deborah was a wonderful woman and in fact, um, you know, her name actually means bumblebee. Uh, which I think is very interesting. And so tonight we're going to be looking at this third period, third of seven different periods. And this third period really encompasses chapter 4 and chapter 5. Chapter 5 is really nothing more than a song 
that Deborah uh, sang along with Barak uh, for their victory uh, over their enemies. And so we're going to look at uh, those two chapters. And so let's look at chapter 4, and let's, let's just read through uh, chapter 4, and then we'll go back and look at it, because I don't want to lose the context. It says that when Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harasheth Hegoyim, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time, and she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. And then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor? Take with you ten thousand men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun, and against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, and with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go up with me, then I will go. But if you will not go up with me, I will not go. And so she said, I will surely go up with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Canaanite, or the Kenite, I'm sorry, of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the Terebinth tree at Zaanaim, which is beside Kedesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him, from Harasheth Hegoyim to the river Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth Hegoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. However, Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera, and she said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. And then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened up a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you and says, Is there any man here, you shall say, No. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and a hammer in her hand 
and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple and thus created a Home Depot commercial. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> she drove his, the peg into his temple and it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary, and so he died. And when, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera, dead with the peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So a very interesting uh, event in the life of Israel. And so let's go back to verse 1 here. It says that when Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. You know, and it's interesting that there is a tendency when there is a reprieve in trial or, or a difficulty or even when there's a reprieve in judgment for people to revert back to their own wicked ways. And we see it within our own lives. And perhaps you can relate to a time when God was chastening you or you got into some trouble and then after the punishment had been meted out and you've, you, you paid the price or whatever it was and maybe you realize, hey, this wasn't so bad. Um, and then as time goes on, you find yourself flirting with that same thing again. And, and yet God, in His mercy, you know, He doesn't pour out His wrath. He, 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 he gives you these opportunities to repent. And, and it's sort of the way God was with Israel. He didn't appreciate and certainly didn't approve of anything they were doing. But because there was a reprieve, uh, they started to get comfortable again. They started to get back into the things that they had formerly done. And unfortunately, this seems to be the pattern that Israel went through during the time of Judges and even beyond during the time of the kings before their captivity. And it's unfortunate that the flesh always seeks how far it can go before it gets busted. Before it gets busted. It's true, isn't it? We always try to uh, see how far we can go. How far to the edge can I go? And, and that's the way Israel had lived. They, they, they get delivered from an enemy, and the next thing you know, they get comfortable. And, and, and again, there's many years of rest that they have. And can you imagine 40 years or even 80 years, as it was in the, in the time of Ehud, uh, 80 years of rest. And think, most of us aren't even 80 years old. And to have that length of time for there to be rest in the land of Israel, there's plenty of time for people to kind of get comfortable again and to get back into their old habits and old habits start creeping up and before long they're returning to those old graves and they're, they're digging up the old stuff again and they're allowing their hearts and their minds to be impure once again. But see the thing is, is just as God is going to reveal to us through the children of Israel all throughout this book, we need to pay attention to because God, He takes sin seriously. He takes sin seriously. Let me read something to you out of Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 43. If you recall, it's Matthew 12, verse 43. Now, obviously, this is speaking about someone who is demon-possessed, but I think you can understand what is happening here in this few verses. It says, When an unclean spirit, and Jesus is speaking here, to his disciples, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. And then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty and he finds it swept and he finds it put in order. And then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. 
and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. And so shall it be also with this wicked generation. That's what Jesus was speaking of. And the idea is that when somebody is delivered, if their heart is not in true repentance, what what can happen is that they get comfortable again, and then they, as time goes on, they forget the 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 remorse of their sin. They forget the 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 consequence of the sin. Maybe they look back and think, well, that really wasn't so bad. I could go through that again, and maybe this time I won't get caught. And God says over and over in the Bible, but there's a verse that really haunts me, and it's a it's a good one for it to haunt all of us, and that is. Be, be sure that your sin will find you out. There, there is always a way, no matter how many years go by, if we haven't repented and we continue, God has a way of exposing us. And He will expose us publicly if He has to. He doesn't want to do that. I think God wants to minister to us privately and personally so that we don't have to go through what we see, Some even pastors, uh, going through horrible things publicly and churches dissolving, and people's hearts being crushed. And it's a horrible thing. And so we need to pray for the pastors. I'd appreciate your prayer for me, uh, uh, and pray for all the pastors in Calvary chapels, and even the, the, the churches down the street here. Pray for all those men, that, that God would keep them the way He wants them. He wants to be, them to be like a firebrand in His hand, and I want to be that way too. I want to be someone that God can pour Himself into, and I would be empty as much as possible. Um, and so uh, I think you can understand that. And that's exactly what happened with the children of Israel. So let's go on to verse 2. It says, So the Lord sold them. He sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Herosheth Hagoyim. Now this Jabin, king of Canaan, this may actually be more of a title than it is an actual name. His name probably wasn't Jabin, it was probably something else. But just like we saw with Caesars, the Caesars, the Herods, and the Xerxes, and the Medes and the Persians, these, these names were really titles more than physical names. And so this land of Hazor, which Jabin was the king of, is, is about eight and a half miles north of the Sea of Galilee. When we were there a few weeks ago, we had an opportunity to drive right by Hatsor, and Hatsor is actually a tell. A tell is a, it looks like a hill. And you, you see these in Israel as you're driving, you see these tells uh, everywhere. They're, they're, they're in many places, and you, you can see uh, Hatsor is there and it's a it's a civilization that's been built on another city and it, and, it, and as it gets destroyed it, it just keeps getting built upon and so a tell is is like a city that's been built upon a city that's been built upon a city built upon a city and uh Jericho was a good example of that Jer- Jericho was a, a tell and and so was uh Hazor and other places as well and so when it says in verse 3, the children of Israel, they cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. 20 years kept them in submission, and certainly having 900 chariots of iron, uh, that's something that the children of Israel just could not compete with. God forbid them to have horses, to have these big armies with horses, and he certainly forbid them to have chariots. Because had they had these things, they would have boasted in their military prowess and, and God would have not received the glory. Because you know that many of the battles in the Bible, God used and did a lot with very, very little. 
In fact, we'll see in a few weeks in the, in the life of Gideon how he had a very large army and God had to whittle it down to just a couple hundred guys uh, against an enemy that was very formidable in the thousands. And so God doesn't need a lot to accomplish a lot. He can use a few. And you know, I, I long to see the Lord do that even more uh, because God doesn't need big things. He doesn't need big things. He can do great things with very insignificant people, people that, aren't, um, that don't see themselves as something that great. He always delights to use the, the underdog. He likes to use the person who doesn't have any confidence of their flesh. He, he loves to use people like that. And notice that the children of Israel cried. They cried, and their cries were, uh, were not that God would forgive their sins. Notice the difference here, because they cried. Why did they cry? Because of the 900 chariots and the oppression. But do you see in that verse any desire to be delivered of their own sin and to be forgiven? There really isn't. And this is really what the Bible calls worldly sorrow. There's a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to repentance and worldly sorrow is just mad and upset because I got caught and, or mad or upset because I'm going through the consequence of what I've done wrong, but there's no change of heart and that is the difference. When a person gets busted and it truly changes their life, um, it is a, a godly sorrow. More often than not, especially if you're a Christian and you get busted, your your heart is broken, you're, you're, you're sick of your sin, and you're like, God, I am totally done with this. I'm so sick of it, and you're sick of it, and now I am really, really, really sick of it. Have you gotten to that place before where you're really sick of your sin? We have to come to that place. Otherwise, chances are we'll never turn from whatever it is, right? And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Beginning in verse 8, this is what Paul says to the Corinthians. He said, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, he's speaking about his first letter in 1 Corinthians, he says, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same letter made you sorry, though only for a while. But now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. So again, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Verses 8 through 11. So he says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us, excuse me, in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. And he speaks of the, the, the evidence, really, of their godly sorrow. What is it? He says, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation uh, of, of the sin, and what fear, what, what, what reverence, and what awe, and what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication, and all these things, notice, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. And he's talking about a matter of a man sleeping with another, uh, his mother's, uh, his dad's wife, or he's speaking about a very ugly situation there in Corinth. But so godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, and this is really what we see Israel doing is really not having godly sorrow under repentance, but having sorrow and just uncomfortable in the in the circumstances that they're in. It has been said by one author, it says, To ask God for comfort and not cleansing is only to sow seeds of selfishness 
that will eventually produce another bitter harvest. It's very interesting, isn't it? Because if we don't turn, if, if the children of Israel would use this opportunity to turn from their sin, they would have been in a much better place because true repentance, that there's nothing that happens after. There's no consequence that's coming later on down the road. It, it's pure and, it, and, the, and there's, there's life. Um, but when we do not do that, we're sowing seeds of selfishness that will eventually produce another bitter harvest. It's sort of like taking the test over again. You know, when I was in kindergarten, here's a, here's a little tidbit about myself, not that you really care, but it fits the story here. <laughs> when I was a kid in kindergarten, I, I would go into the school and I hated school. And so I would go into kindergarten and as soon as my teacher, because I lived really close by to the school, and I would go into the school and as soon as she took roll and she turned her head, I would zap out of the out of the room and she didn't even know I was gone for quite a while. And I would spend my whole day in the park across the street from my house. And and I had as a result of that, I had to take kindergarten. Can you believe that? I wasn't mature enough. They said I was immature for first or for kindergarten, so I had to be held back and I had to do kindergarten again. And I can hear you laughing, even though all of you are muted. I can hear some of you laughing right now, and so uh, I had to take it over again. I had to redo it again, and that's exactly what the children of Israel and what we do when we don't repent truly from something. We're gonna go through it again. It's just a matter of time. So it really behooves us, doesn't it, to really get serious with the Lord and say, Lord. I want to do this one time. I want to turn from this and be done with it. In fact, notice the difference between what Israel did and what David did after his sin with Bathsheba. What does it record for us in Psalm 51, verse 10? I would encourage you to read that whole psalm. But in verse 10, he says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. There is the mark, there is the hallmark of a man who has truly repented. We know that David cracked like an egg when he got when Nathan, uh, by the Spirit of God, brought him great conviction. David truly did repent, and he never did that ever again. It was true repentance, and so therefore, this is the kind of repentance that the Israel needed back at this time, because uh, David wasn't even nowhere on the scene at this point. This was hundreds of years before David would be born, and and so, let's look at verse four. It says, Now Deborah, a prophetess, so she's a prophet, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. And so Deborah was a judge and she was a prophetess, but we'll see later in chapter 5, verse 7, that she called herself really a mother to Israel. She was like a mother to Israel. And I love that because when you think of a mother, you think of somebody who is always there, somebody who is nurturing, somebody who is there when you're crying on you know you're you're broken hearted you can always climb up in the mother's lap and you can cry and she's always there to 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 rub your hair and to rub your head and to wipe away the tears and to offer soft words of encouragement and so deborah really saw herself as this and i want to talk about something here at this point because deborah obviously was a woman and in this culture the men really dominated the culture and god has a role for men and women he really does. And those roles are distinct and they're wonderful when they're embraced. Um, but unfortunately, we see in, in, in our culture today, many women, uh, and, and to no fault of their own, as long as their hearts are right, 
whenever there is a void of leadership, a woman will gladly fit into that position, even though it's a position that she really ought not to be in. And it has nothing to do with whether a woman can. We know that women are very able. In fact, they're, um, I, I've been admitting and will continue to admit that my wife is smarter than I am in so many ways, right? But God hasn't called her to be a pastor of a church. God has called the men to be a pastor. And, and you know, thank God her heart is to help me in this ministry, to support me, and that's a wonderful role. And, and I thank her for that. And when men and women embrace those roles that God has given us, the men are to be the head of their own homes, not the women. And again, it has nothing to do with intelligence. It has nothing to do with uh, strength or ability or spiritual capability. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with God's order of things. So why, why is Deborah here now in this position of being a judge over Israel? Let me suggest to you that the children of Israel had gotten into such a period of spiritual decline that the men were completely sold out and there was really not a man in the area that God could put his finger on and say, I want you to lead my people. I want to speak to your heart. But God probably found no man because if he had, he wouldn't have called Deborah. And De So this is not Deborah's fault. This is really an indictment really against the children of Israel. Again, God's not a chauvinist and neither am I. Uh, but the Bible says that that God creates uh, roles for men and women, and when we both embrace those roles, there is a great, great peace. There's a great unity. Everything is at peace, <laughs> relatively, and, and we see in our culture now that not really happening. We see uh, men and women in roles that they were not created to be in, and that creates a lot of strife. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 3, uh, because uh, this is really something that God was speaking to Isaiah's heart uh, before the coming judgment from Babylon on Judah and Jerusalem specifically. And let me read to you just the first 12 verses because the verse that we really want to land on is in verse 12, but let's just look at it. It says, the Lord says to, Jeremiah, or to Isaiah, he says, For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, takes away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stock and the store, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water, the mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet and the diviner and the elder. Notice what God is taking away from them because of their idolatry. He's taking away from them their, their very sustenance and the men that, that God had raised up, the judge and the prophet, the diviner, the elder, the captain of the fifty, and the honorable man, the counselor, and the skillful artisan, and the expert enchanter, which God obviously didn't approve of, but that's what they were into. And so he says, I'm taking that all away, and I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them, and the people will be oppressed. And this is not a good thing, God is saying. This is, not, this is really the result of their uh, disobedience. This is what God's going to allow. This is a, a bad sign when children rule over their parents and over a culture. And so he goes on and he says, The people, verse 5, will be oppressed, and every one by another, and every one by his neighbor. The child will be insolent toward the elder, and the base toward the honorable. When a man takes hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have clothing, you be our ruler, and let these ruins be under your power. In that day he will protest, saying, I will not cure your ills, for in my house is neither food nor clothing. Do not make me a ruler of the people. For Jerusalem stumbled, and Judah is fallen. And again, these are the words of God. 
because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory, they, the look on their countenance witnesses against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to their soul, for they have brought evil upon themselves. And so God says, Say to the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings, which is good. But then, alternately, Woe to the wicked! It shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hand shall be given him. And here's the verse. As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, those who lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. And so whenever a woman is raised up to rule over, over the people, that is not a good thing. And again, it's not a reflection about the woman. The woman, because Deborah was a very godly woman, and God was very pleased with her. He was not angry with her at all. I think he was upset with the men that there was not a man. And you'll see later on how Deborah responds, and we've already seen this, as we read through the chapter, of her heart's desire to really give that, that glory, if you will, to Barak. That, that was her heart, because she knew where her role in this whole thing was. And she, her desire was that God would get the glory and that Barak would be the one next. But as we'll see in the song afterwards, we're going to see that Deborah, and again, this is not her fault, but that the song is really giving Deborah more of the, of the preeminence other than God. And again, it's not her fault. It's just the way it came out because she really had the faith where Barak did not. She was the one who had direction where Barak did not. And he could have had these things if he was submitted unto the Lord. But for some reason, he wasn't. And he was scared and unwilling. And God found in her a woman who was strong and very willing and listening to the Lord. And that's all that matters to God. He can use anything. He can use a donkey. And he did, didn't he? He used a donkey to rebuke Balaam. Um, and so, but again, nothing against Deborah and certainly nothing against women. But there are roles of men and women. And we, we got to, um, and, and that's a good thing for us today. Men, what are you doing in your homes? Are you the head of your home or is your wife the head of the home? You know, um, you know, you should have the say. You should have the final say over things. Your wife and you should pray together. You should make decisions together. But the ultimate, the, when it really comes down to it, that decision is yours. And you have to make that decision. And so make the decision with meekness and with gentleness and listening to your wife because God has given you to her, given her to you. It would be foolish to make decisions without ever consulting our wives. Do you really want to know their heart and their thoughts? Maybe they've got something better. But ultimately, God's going to reward you for what you do according to His will. But we need to listen, guys, and we need to take that, that role in our house very seriously. And we can't uh, give that away to anyone. And when we do, and if we do it rightly, and we do it in the meekness that, that God would have us to, your wife will willingly submit to you. And especially if you do it with a right heart, she won't be bitter and angry. And if you're not heavy-handed and acting like, you know, Tarzan, you know, the king of the jungle, you know, she's going to respect you and there's, there's going to be peace because the order has been reestablished. And so we live in a culture where that's gotten all whacked out of, it's, it's all whacked. <laughs> it's all strange now. But going on to verse 5, it says, And she, Deborah, would sit under the palm tree of Deborah. There's even a tree named after her. How's that? 
between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. So they would come up to her to have matters discussed and for her to give direction. And again, why wasn't a man doing that? Maybe because there wasn't a man to do that. And again, that's really an indictment against the men in that culture at this time in history. So, then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh and Naphtali. So Barak was from Naphtali, which is up there, that land right to the west of, of the Sea of Galilee and going up a little bit north of the Sea of Galilee. And so she said to him, and notice, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun. I, I, had, um, I didn't have time to do this tonight, but when we were in Israel recently, I got this really wonderful picture of Mount Tabor. It looks like a camel's hump, and it, it's like this. And it's a, it's a big mountain, and it's right there in the Jezreel Valley, along the Valley of Megiddo, in that area up there in the north. And this is where uh, this event took place. And so 10,000 men... She says, go and take 10,000 men of Naphtali and the tribe of Zebulun and go against him. Go against this Sisera. And against you, I will deploy Sisera. Notice, God is saying this through Deborah. Against you guys, I'm going to bring Sisera against you. And he's the commander of Jabin's army and his, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon. And I will deliver him into your hand. And again, the river Kishon is a river right at the base of Mount Carmel. I had another picture I wanted to show to you tonight. But it's, a, it's right at the base of Mount Carmel where uh, you remember that Samuel defeated the prophets of Baal. He faced off with those 450 prophets. And you remember the event that at the end of that uh, contest, if you will, that Elijah uh, with other men, they, they took those 450 prophets of Baal and they killed them right at the right down at the bottom of that hill. There's a stream. It's dried up today. You can't see it, but um, at the time there was a river going through there, and you can still see where it used to be. Uh, and that's where he slaughtered those 450 prophets right there at the base. And so now, um, much further back in history, now we see uh, uh, Sisera coming against. Um, uh, Deborah and Barak and the armies right at that same location. And so notice what Barak said. So here she is prophesying, telling him what's coming. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And, you know, when I read that, it kind of pains me as a man uh, because he's basically saying, I don't, I don't have... But you know what? I, I love the fact that Deborah didn't rub his nose in it too much. I mean, she really didn't rub his nose in it at all. But uh, she was willing to uh, to go along with uh, Barak, and she wasn't upbraiding him at all. She was willing to give the direction, and, and then he and his men were to execute that decision. And and so, so he said, if you go with me, then I'll go. But if you won't go with me, I will not go. And um, so... Let's go back to uh, verse 7 there. It says, And against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon. We, we just read that. And uh, again, I, I just shared that with you. So let me, uh, uh, let's go on here. Uh, the verse 8. <laughs> and Barak said to her, Again, if you will go with me, 
then I will go, but if you won't go with me, I will not go. And, you know, notice again his, his reluctance. His reluctance, and we see this in other areas of the Scripture where God has called an individual and they are reluctant to go. And, and so this is not a new thing. And this is just a, a part of a sinful man. Uh, every one of us, we, we really don't know what we're made of until we're placed in a situation where we have to demonstrate our faith. Because uh, that phrase that we've used before, a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. So we really don't know really where we stand until we're in a position where we have to respond in faith. And, and that is where God, see God knows he knows where our faith is, but we don't always know until we're put into a position where we've got to exercise it. And then, and then we discover really where we're at. And, you know, whether we crumble or whether we rise to the occasion and are victorious, you know, God gives that. But, you know, when we look at the life of Moses, you remember in Moses or in Exodus chapter 3 and 4, God tells Moses after he had escaped from Egypt, after killing a man, he was in the desert, uh, ministering to Jethro, his father-in-law, and he was out there for 40 years. But what, did he, what happened when Moses saw the fiery bush? God says, I want you to go and I want you to deliver my people. And what did Moses say? He says in verse 11 of Exodus 3, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? You know, who am I? I'm nobody. He used to be the second in command. And now he's nobody. And he, he was small in his own sight, but he was also small in faith too. Because in, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 1, what does God say to him? Oh, I'm sorry, Moses said, uh, answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. So here Moses is just in his, uh, his unwillingness. He, he, he's really not wanting to go. He, he doesn't really see himself qualified, which sounds like a good thing. But we also see him hemming and hawing with the Lord. And then in verse 13 of that same chapter, but he's, finally he said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. In other words, Lord, send somebody else. I really am not up for this. And so reluctant he was, just like uh, Barak was. And we see the same thing in Gideon. Remember in Judges chapter 6, which we're going to get to in a few weeks, when God comes to Gideon and tells him what he's going to do through his life, what, is, what does he say? He says, O oh my Lord, how can I save Israel against the Amalekites? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Another excuse. And see, that's, that's what happens in the life of, of natural man, especially when we're, when we're not walking in faith, but walking in the flesh. We don't always see um, ourselves as, as being able to do anything. And, and some of that can be humility, but we'll see that... Um, and being small in your own sight is a good thing, you know, but when God encourages you to go, with the command comes the enablement. And that's really what I wanted to share there because when God says, this is what I want to do, the best thing to do is just to agree with God, regardless of what I think of myself, even though it may be accurate. You know, there, I'm, I'm not all that, Lord, and I know that. I, I, I can't speak well. And isn't that what, uh, what it says in... Um, uh, what Moses said, that's finally what he said. Lord, I can't speak. I can't speak. But notice that Barak is listed in Hebrews. In the great hall of faith, we call it, in Hebrews chapter 11, let me read to you just verse 30 through 34. 
because even though Barak was really led by a woman, really, he was following her lead, following her direction. And it says, By faith the walls of Jericho, this is Hebrews 11, verse 30, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days, and by faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And here it is, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, and to tell of Barak, and Samson, and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, they worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong. And I like that, because that's really where God can take over, is when we really, out of weakness, when God tells us to do something and we do it, what happens? He becomes our strength. The enablement, the commandment is already, is, it, when he, as soon as He makes the command, everything that we need is within us, whether we believe it or not, whether we feel it or not. And isn't feelings, boy, those are some of the strangest things, our emotions, because they get us to dwell on our shortcomings, and we can hide behind that and say, well, it's just because I'm meek and mild and, and I don't have a problem with you know pride. Well, sometimes that can be true, and sometimes it's just downright cowardice. It's just an excuse, which is what we see. And so Barak is even listed here, even though um, it was really a woman, this wonderful woman, Deborah, who was really calling the shots. And the Lord was using her, and yet you don't see her name here in the Hall of Faith, but she was faithful. She was a faithful woman, but Barak here is listed. Amazing. So let's go on in verse 9. And so she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And so here she is trying to warn Barak that, you know what, Barak, I'll go with you, but do you understand that if I go with you, you know, the Lord's going to give me the glory and I'm not supposed to get the glory. In fact, neither are you. But because men are who they are and your army is the army going out, you're going to be the name that people are going to be looking up to. They're first, hopefully, will look to the Lord and give Him thanks. But secondly, they're probably, they should be looking for what God did through you, not through me. But she does anyway. And the, the word sell here, when it says that, that, that God will, the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman, this literally means a surrender. God's going to surrender Sisera to them like merchandise. He's going to basically give Sisera into the hand of the Israelites. And so, and then we're going to see that later on in verse 21 of this chapter. But notice in verse 10, before we get there, it says, Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites, and he pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Zaanaim, which is beside Kedesh. And I love these things in the Bible where it's very specific about where a specific uh, location is. These, these markers that everyone in that, era, in that time knew of, and many of those markers are gone today, but it was a very specific place. It was near the terebinth tree at Zaanaim. Do you know where that is? I have no idea. So, which is beside Kedesh. Do you know where that is? I have no idea. And they reported to Sisera, this family, this Heber the Kenite, they reported to Sisera, this enemy of the Israelites, 
that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. And so Sisera gathered together all of his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him, from Harasheth, Hegoyim, to the river Kishon. Remember that, that river that really is right at the base of Mount Carmel, and it goes all the way up. And that the name of, of that river, Kishon, means winding, because it does. It, it winds around, and then it finally goes out to the place that we would call, uh, um, it was called Aco, but it's in that little, up there by uh, Tyre and Sidon, in that area there, up there where the uh, Valley of Megiddo empties into the uh, Mediterranean Sea. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And uh, again, I have this wonderful picture, and I can almost picture because the mountain goes up like this and then it kind of tapers off like this toward the north. And it's very possible that they were up there in the mountain. They came down on that slope to come after uh, Sisera. And notice in verse 15, And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots, all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. This word routed is really wonderful. We kind of lose... We don't use that term in, in our language today, really. But what it really means is it's a, it's a Hebrew word that means to disturb or to put in commotion, to trouble or to confuse, to confuse. So the Lord confused Sisera and all of his chariots. And what is this word trouble, you know, confusing him? Why was he confused? Well, we're going to find little hints in the Song of Deborah in chapter 5, but it sounds like... The Lord, in a very uh, uh, a dry season, which is in between June and September, it would have been a great surprise for Sisera to be in that area, knowing that it was the dry season, and then all of a sudden there is this torrential rainfall coming down. Now you would know what would happen if you had chariots and horses out in in the in the valley, and we've seen this valley, and it's very lush, and when it rains and it rains hard after a dry season, that water doesn't even have a chance to really absorb into the ground, and so it just stays on top, and now it's muddy, and the horses and the chariots are getting stuck, and so now Sisera is freaking out because he thought he had the upper hand, knowing the times and the seasons very well, and then all of a sudden he's struck by this uh, rainstorm, this torrential rainfall, and it really gave an edge to the Israelites now as they were coming on feet. Now they had to flee their chariots and run. And it's interesting that the god of the Canaanites was the god Baal. And Baal was a god of storms. He was a god of nature, a god of storms. And so when they see this storm happening at a very unusual, very unusual time in their season, you can imagine these Canaanite men are thinking to themselves, our own god is against us. Our own God is against us. And can you imagine the terror? And the, the word there, he, he, um, he routed them, he troubled them, he vexed them. God confused them because they were confused. Now they couldn't get around in their chariots. Now they're wondering if their own God is against them. They had no idea. And so it's very interesting, very interesting. You know, you can look in, in other passages of the Bible where it talks about God using the same word in Exodus chapter 14, verses 24 
where the, God did the same thing with the Egyptians as they brought them through as the children of Israel went across the, the Red Sea and chariots and the uh, Egyptian armies came after him and it says that God troubled the army. The, the word is the same word that we heard up above where he routed them. It's the same exact word. He troubled them. He confused them. He vexed them. And they, were, they got their chariot wheels are coming off and they drove them with difficulty. And, and, and so it was an amazing thing. Amazing thing. And so back in verse 16 in our text tonight, it says, But Barak, he pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, and not a man was left. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to Jael. Her name actually means um, mountain goat. How would you like that, ladies, to have a name that meant mountain goat? I kind of wonder what this woman looked like. You know, maybe she had a, a big wart on the end of her nose. I don't know. Maybe she had fuzzy ears. I have no idea. Uh, mountain goat was is what her name means. JL means mountain goat. And so she comes, um, so Sisera fled away on foot to the tent. And it was very customary for people to be very hospitable, but it's very unusual um, for a man to go into another man's tent, another a, a man's tent where his wife is in there. So that kind of explained how comfortable uh, and how at peace these, these this people was the the J R Heber the Kenite and his wife because they were uh, really uh, simpatico if you will with Sisera and uh, the king of Hazor, but so J L went out to meet Sisera. So now he's he's fled from the battle, which is pretty shameful, and now he's going to come and he's going to be in the tent of uh, of a woman. So Jael went out to meet Sisera, and she said, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. And then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So instead of giving him water, she does an even greater thing in, in, in appeasing him. And so her, his defenses are completely coming down because he's exhausted. He's exhausted. He's thirsty. So not only is she covering him and speaking softly to him, but instead of giving him water, she's giving him milk. And you know what a nice cold glass of milk does for you at nighttime or before you're, while you're tired. It just puts you right to sleep. And that's exactly what happens to Sisera. And so J.L., Haber's wife, she took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him. And you can imagine him all cuddled up and he's got the blanket underneath his head here and he's resting and he's got his tummy full of milk. And, and she takes that tent peg and she sticks it and kind of puts it right over the top of his head and then hits that hammer. And, and just so you know, it was the women's job, believe it, and believe it or not, in this culture for them to put up the tent. So this was not something, having a tent peg and a hammer is not something that was unusual for her. She knew how to use these tools because it was the woman's responsibility, believe it or not, to put up the tent. So she was very comfortable with this. So she drives this, this tent peg through his temple and fastens it into the ground because he was fast asleep and so he died. And so do you see how this verse really was... Uh, the fulfillment of what Deborah had said previously in verse 14. For this day which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand, has not the Lord, Lord gone out before you? And, and so he tells, she told uh, um, Barak earlier that this is what God was going to do, that he was going to sell Sisera into the hand of a woman, and that woman was Jael. 
It wasn't Deborah, it was Jael. And so then as Barak uh, pursued Sisera, Jael came out of the tent to meet him. So she had this wonderful change of heart and she realized that if this guy's fleeing from the, 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 the armies of Israel, her heart was probably like, we better be on the right side here because they, they really should have been on the Israelite side, but they found themselves in some kind of, excuse me, interesting relationship with the king of, of, of Canaan, this uh, Jabin, king of Hazor. And, and so now when she sees Sisera coming and fleeing, she's thinking to herself, the, the tide has changed. And so for whatever reason, instead of being um, abetting the enemy, now she's putting the enemy to death and thus being a victor really in this whole uh, thing. So on that day, verse 23, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they ultimately destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. And so what a wonderful um, uh, event you know that has occurred and and God being faithful to his word that he would uh, deliver uh, Sisera into the hand of a woman and and through Deborah's direction and her faith and Jabin were in his armies they were just the men to execute the decision but then following in chapter 5 and we'll look at this we don't have to spend a great deal on this because it's it's a song but I think as we read it you'll see uh, some interesting things. Um, and many of the great victories of the children of Israel, we know that there are songs attached to it. We saw this when um, Moses and the children of Israel came through the Red Sea. Remember that Miriam and Moses, they wrote a song, and it's recorded in Exodus 15. And also David's deliverance from Psalm. You remember when finally uh, Saul was defeated, when he was killed, and uh, David was no longer being hunted by Saul, that David wrote Psalm 18. And so we see these great songs of victory all throughout the Bible, and this is one of them. And so let's read the song, and uh, we'll comment on a few things as we go along here. So it says, Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day. So here they are. I, I wonder uh, whether they sang a duet, you know, whether it was like Beauty and the Beast. You know, uh, beauty and the beast. You guys are probably laughing, right? Or maybe not. Uh, so, but notice the order uh, of the names here. It's not Barak and Deborah. The song is Deborah and Barak. So Deborah really is the one that God had filled with faith and a heart of, of zeal for the Lord. And so it says, Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Ahinoam, Abinoam, excuse me, sang on that day, and it says, when the leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, and give ear, O princes. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured, and the clouds also poured water. The mountains gush before the Lord, this Sinai before the, the God of Israel. And so they're really speaking of, of, of history in Israel's history. They're speaking of some events in that. And so finally in verse 6, In the days of Shamgar, which we know was right, be, right, before, uh, right before Deborah, the days of Shamgar that were about 20 years prior to the moment that we're reading about right now. And... Um, 
And so let's go on here. It says, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, this is the woman who put the tent peg, the highways were deserted, and the travelers walked along the byways. Verse 7, Village life ceased. It ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose. Notice it's not I, Barak, or Barak, rose. It's until I, Deborah, arose. And again, I don't think Deborah is tooting her own horn. She's boasting of the faith in God, but it's not, a, it's not something uh, she knew in herself that she wasn't worthy to be boasted of. But she's just telling the truth. She's just telling the truth. Village life ceased. It ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose. And I arose a mother in Israel. That's really the way she saw herself. And I, I love that because that's really where she saw herself a mother in Israel. And, you know, more than a prophetess, more than um, a judge of, of Israel, she saw herself as a mother, someone to nurture and to encourage and to strengthen when they were weak. And what a wonderful woman. We'll see her in, in glory one day. And so it goes on and it says, They chose new gods. Then there was war in the gates. Not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. And my heart is with the rulers of Israel, who offered themselves willingly with the people. Bless the Lord. Speak, you who ride on white donkeys. These are rulers who sit in judges' attire and who walk along the road, far from the noise of the archers among the watering places. There they shall recount the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts for his villagers in Israel. And then the people of the Lord shall go down to the gates. And notice in verse 12, Awake, awake, O Barak. No, it's awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, sing a song. Arise, Barak. He's always number two in this song. Do you ever notice that? Uh, and again, if, if Deborah had her heart, uh, her will accomplished, and if God had his will accomplished, it would have been Barak. Uh, but, but, but it's Deborah. And praise the Lord for Deborah. She was a, a godly faithful woman. Awake, awake, sing a song. Arise, Barak, and lead your captives away, O son of Abinoam. Then the survivors came down, and the people against the nobles. And the Lord came down for me against the mighty. Uh, from Ephraim, where those whose roots were in Amalek. After you, Benjamin, with your peoples. From Machir, rulers came down. And from Zebulun, those who bear the recruiter's staff. And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah, as Issachar, so was Barak. Sent into the valley under his command, among the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolves of heart. Where did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the pipings for the flocks? The divisions of Reuben have great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond, stayed beyond the Jordan, and why did Dan remain on ships? Asher continued at the seashore and stayed in his inlets. Zebulun is a people who jeopardized their lives to the point of death, and Naphtali also on the heights of the battlefield. And so you see her uh, in the in song, Barak and Deborah, speaking of the tribes of Israel. Some of them came to the aid of Barak in this battle against Jabin, uh, the king of Hazor, and those other Canaanites. Um, some of the tribes came to their aid, but there were others that aren't mentioned, and we don't really know why they're not mentioned. Uh, perhaps they didn't want to be bothered. Uh, one of the things we have to remember in, in the book of Judges is that there were skirmishes in different areas, and sometimes the judges were battling, and sometimes they overlapped one another, and they had um, things going on at the same time. It wasn't always like 
you know, the judge 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 for 40 years and then the Lord delivered the hand of this king into their hand and then they had rest for 40 years and then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. It, it does say that, but sometimes there's an overlap. And so there wasn't any centralized king over the whole thing. It was just like pockets of Israelites trying to get whoever one of the tribes could help them to vanquish an enemy that they had in their land, in their area. And that's kind of the way it was. So verse 19, the kings came and they fought, and then the kings of Canaan fought, and Taanach by the waters of Megiddo, they took no spoils of silver. They fought from the heavens, and the stars from their courses fought against Sisera. And this, this really speaks of God's help that he would provide the children of Israel. You know, when, when it says that the stars from their courses fought against Sisera, the very heavens, the very clouds, the water that came down and really discomfited uh, Sisera and his 900 chariots of proud steel or proud iron, uh, God was the one who did that. God was the one who did that. And we see the very same thing happening in back in Joshua, in Joshua chapter 10. Remember the long day of Joshua when they went uh, against their enemies and the Lord allowed the, the sun to remain in the sky for an entire day, giving them time to clean up this mess and to vanquish the enemy. God did that. That was something that God did that certainly Joshua didn't know. He couldn't make that happen. There's no human being that can, can alter the forces of nature. How are you going to do that? You know, there's nothing that you, you can't, you can't stop a tornado. You know, um, you can't stop a hurricane. You know, how do you stop these things? You have to prepare and get out of the way. And so, these things are in the hands of God, or if God allows uh, the prince of the power of the air, he can do those things if God allows him. But anyway, notice what happens in verse 21. So go back to verse 20, excuse me. They fought from the heavens. The stars from their courses fought against Sisera. And notice this, the torrent of Kishon swept them away. That ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon, O my soul, march on in strength. Again, the Kishon at this time was running raging a raging river because of the rain and because of that little rut where the where the stream was anyway and then you fast forward now um you fast forward a, a, a few hundred years where now you've got elijah facing off and going down to that very same river the river kishon and and slaughtering the 450 prophets of baal and then seeing it today is almost un, un, unusual because there's a there's a series of buildings right before and right behind those buildings is this little dry riverbed that used that's called the Kishon, and so there it is today. It was interesting to see, but at this time it was running rampant and it was full, and so then the horses, verse twenty two, their their hooves pounded the galloping galloping of his steed. So now you know they're they're in there. This water's coming down, and so they're just recounting in song what happened in that battle. How God had just caused it to rain. The the rivers overflowing. The chariots are stuck. The horses are trying to get their hooves going, and they're they're slipping and sliding. And then he says in verse 23, Curse Meros, said the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants bitterly. So this is a town called Meros, which no one really knows where this town is. But there's a town that God was very unhappy with because, here it is, because they did not come to the help of the Lord. Not that the Lord needed help, but there's something that God delights in when he is in a battle and he engages you to be a part of it. If you 
re respond and say, I'm not going to be involved in this. Lord, you do it. God will always raise up somebody else to do it. And you're the one who misses out on a victory. But here's the cool thing. When, the, when it's the Lord's battle, He does something great and you're along with it. Guess what? You take in the victory of that too. And there's a wonderful feeling when you do something for the Lord and it's successful. And when God does something really wonderful and you're a part of that, there's nothing greater. There's a great feeling about that. Just to know that, hey, you know what? I may have been the only the water boy. I may, have been the, I, may, I may have been the young man with a towel wiping the forehead of the general, but I did my part. And God rewards us equally. That's just the way he does it. And I love that. I love that. Because they did not come to the help of the Lord to help to, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Again, God doesn't need anyone's help, but he delights it. He delights when his people come to his aid because the victory is even swifter, it's even greater. Who gets the reward? Who gets the, who gets the glory? The Lord does. So, verse 24, Most blessed among women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Blessed is she among women in tents. Wow, can you imagine her forearm? You know, maybe her forearm was you know, like this, as she you know, was used to driving those tent nails in. Uh, I bet her husband respected her, you know, was very careful around her. He asked for water, so recounting the event. Sisera asked her for water. She gave milk. She brought out cream in a lordly bowl. She stretched her hand at the tent peg, her right hand, to the worker's hammer, and she pounded Sisera. I like that. She pounded him. She pierced his head. She split and struck through his temple. How much more pictorial and visual can we get? And, her, and, and, and at her feet, he sank. He fell. He laid still. At her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. And he, it, it sounds like a song, doesn't it? And then in verse 28 through 30, we're almost done here. This is interesting because uh, verses 28 through 30 really represent the hope and the longing of Sisera's mother. Because as she, as the day is dawning, or as the day is ending, actually, she's expecting her son Sisera to come home. She's expecting him to come home and the horses to be galloping. And so in her mind, she's thinking he's delaying. There must have been a reason for this. So the mother of Sisera looked through the window and she cried out through the lattice, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarries the clatter of his chariot? So she's expecting him and he's not coming yet. But then she, her wisest ladies answered her and, she, and yes, she answered herself. And so they're thinking, why is he delayed? Ah, I know why they're delayed. Are they not finding and dividing the spoil? And, and in her mind, she's thinking, my son has been victorious in battle. Right now, they're dividing spoil. And notice, to every man, a girl or two. Because as you know, in those times, because they were pagan, uh, men of the armies, as they raided these villages, they would often rape the young girls. And so she's thinking, well, maybe he's enjoying a girl or two. For Sisera, plunder of dyed garments... Plunder of garments embroidered and dyed. Maybe he's going through the plunder and looking at all the stuff he's going to bring home to mama. You know, maybe that's what he's doing. Two pieces of dyed embroidery for the neck of the looter. And then finally, the, the song ends. And this is really the blessedness of the believer and the fate of the wicked in this verse. It says, Thus, let all your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. So the land had rest for 40 years, for 40 years. So, you know, this, these, ver these chapters, verses, uh, excuse me, chapters 4 and 5 really just sum up the, the battle and the song that 
Barak and Deborah had sung. And what a great victory. But, you know, there's always that, that lesson here uh, for us guys to, to really take up uh, th- that authority that God has given us. Um, not in um, bravado and, and certainly not by uh, coercion or, or by some kind of uh, brutality. Um, you see that in some cultures and it's not good. And no wonder the women don't respect their husbands. You know? But lovingly respecting it, 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 and, and, and loving, it, it has a way of changing the heart of people and especially a, 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 a man's attitude toward his wife. You know, if he's really a spiritual man and loving her and treating her with respect and he's doing what he should be doing, she'll gladly submit to him. And so, guys, that, that's, that's a challenge for us. You know, let, let's be those men. Let's be those men that, when, that we're listening to the Lord. Our ear is close to his voice. And we're willing to do whatever he wants. And we're willing to lead our homes and our families. And, 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 and wives, you know... Be willing to submit to your husbands, even when he does wrong things. And so these things are important for us to do. That, that's what the whole admonishment that we have in, in 2 Timothy um, is Paul exhorting the men to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And then he exhorts the women, women, uh, love your husbands and, and submit yourselves to your own husbands. And so these things are important. But what a, what a wonderful event in Israel's history. And so next uh, time we get together, we're going to be looking at the fourth period. We just looked at the third period in the Judges. Next week, we'll look at the fourth period where it talks about the Midianites, and we'll certainly get into uh, Gideon, and that's going to last us for a couple of a couple of chapters. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time, and we pray that, God, you would encourage our hearts. Just strengthen us tonight. Lord, help us men uh, Lord, to be those men that you've created us to be, to be the heads of our homes, to be the heads in our communities. Lord, to be, to be heads in, in the church, Lord, to be men uh, of honor, Lord, to, uh, to be willing to take a hard look at our own selves. Lord, to be men that you'd be proud to be, to use, Father, in this time in history. Lord, help the men, help us all, Father, to rise and to do what you've called us to do. And Lord, I pray for the ladies, Lord. Thank you so much for them, God. Thank you for their support. Thank you for their loving words and their kindness, Father. And, and thank you for their enablements, Lord. Such intelligent and, and wonderful in so many different ways, God. It's, it's wonderful how you've made man and woman, Lord, and husband and wife, Lord. Such a wonderful pair, Lord. Such a great thing that you have done in the lives of, of, of each one of us, Lord. And so... Have your way with us in Jesus' name. Amen.